Uh, good morning. Is it too close? We'll try that again. Okay. I love the way this passage started. I love the way it ended. It starts out with, but they were praying and worshiping, singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening. That passage ends. The Philippian jailer and his whole household rejoiced. They were leaping for joy because they had believed in God. If those men had reacted any other way during their persecution, that passage, I'm sure, would have ended in a different way. But it ended having believed in God. Why? Because they made the choice to worship. I'm going to speak this morning on suffering, and I don't have answers for human suffering, but I do know this. The Bible tells us what to do when we are suffering. It's simple. We are to worship. We turn things upside down when we choose to worship during our suffering and our persecution. Paul and Silas were no strangers to persecution, no strangers to suffering. They chose to worship in a jail cell. Notice this passage starts with the word, but. We've got to go back and look what happens before the but. These men were dragged into the marketplace. A violent mob then stripped them of their clothing. There was no laws in Rome prohibiting how many times you could lay a stripe on a man's back. The Jews had a law that you could only beat a man 39 times. How gracious that was. However, the Romans could beat a man until the point of unconsciousness. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that I was beaten with stripes above measure. He couldn't count them. I'm sure this instance was no different. Accused of bringing traditions and customs that were lawful for Romans to keep, which was a false accusation, stirring up the people and troubling all the city, another false accusation, fastening their feet, their feet, they only have one set of feet, <laughs> in stocks. Stocks are what we think of today. Stocks in the Roman Empire, historians tell us, were two blocks of wood, Holes were drilled, and they would separate the legs as far as they could. Stocks were an instrument of acute torture. And our passage starts out with the words, but. In spite of all they went through, they chose to worship God in a dank, dark cell with no ventilation, no sunlight, and the prisoners were listening. Why does God allow for human suffering? Why does not God just stop in the middle of our pain and our sorrow and our suffering and say, that's enough? 
I'm going to stop it. A Christian apologist was asked that question one time. He told a story about a man who was digging his own grave during the Jewish Holocaust. Digging his own grave. Then the German shoulder, soldier took a pistol and shot him and buried him in the grave that he dug. After his talk, an objector stood up and said, if God is all-loving and God is all-powerful, why did he not cause that gun to misfire? The Christian apologist looked back and said, you're asking for something other than humanity. You see, God could have created a world free of suffering, couldn't he? He could have created a world where we all choose to do good. But in so doing, he would have also created a world where empathy was not possible, self-sacrifice was not possible, but most importantly, he would have created a world where there was no such thing as love. Love has to be a free act of our will. And creating this world with a free will, God also put in it the potential for the greatest heinous evil crimes that you and I could imagine. Paul and Silas, during their time of suffering, they willingly chose to worship the Lord with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their mind, and with all their strength. And they also chose to love their Philippian brothers as themselves. Love is the greatest ethic of all. And when you and I find ourselves in the midst of suffering, persecution, sorrow, heartache, we must choose to worship God. Worshiping God does two things. Two things. It changes us. Secondly, it changes those who observe us. That's my message this morning. Pretty simple. To choose to worship God changes us and it changes those who observe us. God often does His greatest work of perfecting saints through hours of suffering. Romans chapter 5 tells us this, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access unto this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Well, I'm an echo chamber up here. <laughs> We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only this, we glory in what? We glory and rejoice in tribulation. Knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character. You see a man and a woman of character, and I will show you a man or a woman that's been through tribulation. Because it's produced in them perseverance, and perseverance produces character. And you know what character produces? It produces hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts through the Holy Spirit that's been given to us. God often does His greatest work in our hearts through our times of deepest sorrow and suffering. You see those who shine the brightest for Christ... And they're often those who are going through the darkest times of tribulation. 
God wants us to choose to worship. Because right now, you know what you and I look into? We are looking into a dark glass dimly. We don't see the end. We don't see what God is doing. But one day we will see face to face. And then all those mysteries that we've woven through those times of suffering will be clear. But in the meantime, what do we have? We have faith. We have hope. And we have love. And the greatest of these is love. Ravi Zachariah, one of my favorite apologists, he tells the story to illustrate how God weaves a mystery through our human suffering. It was a story of a Middle Eastern man. He owned one horse. And in the Middle East, in the ancient time, one horse was very, very valuable. It was your instrument for fertilizer. It was your instrument for plowing in the field. And it was your only means of transportation. And that one horse ran off, and his next-door neighbor came to him. He says, oh, you suffered some bad luck. Your horse has run away. The man says, what do I know about luck? Ah, what do we know about luck? That's a mystery. Well, the next day, that one horse returned with 20 wild horses. He says, oh, wonderful luck. That one horse has brought back 20 horses. Great luck. And he says, what do I know about luck? What do I know about these things? Well, his son decided he was going to go out and tame one of those wild horses. And we'll have two horses that we can drive in town. We'll have two horses that we can plow in the field. Sure enough, that horse kicked him and broke his leg. The neighbor comes back and says, oh, bad luck. Those wild horses came back and your son's got a broken leg now. He says, what do I know about luck? Well, about a week later, a bunch of thugs come through town. They're looking for young recruits, every able-bodied boy. They come to the young boy, and you know what the story is, right? They look at the boy with a bad, broken leg and says, we don't want him. And the neighbor says, ah, good luck. I should be saying this with an Irish accent. <laughs> but we don't know what's going to happen around the next corner, do we? We don't know how God is going to weave into our suffering something unexpected. That little story illustrates that we don't know what's going to even happen tomorrow. Let alone what an infinite, all-loving, all-powerful, all-wise, and all-good God is going to do in the midst of our suffering. Why does God allow suffering? And why does God allow evil? I don't have an answer, but I do have a biblical explanation. And I'm just going to just sort of give a general idea so that we can kind of have an idea this morning. I think primarily suffering comes into this universe, into this world, because of Adam's sin. The day that God told Adam, when you sin, you will surely die. Adam didn't die physically that moment, did he? It brought a curse and it brought separation from God. And all of this universe, this whole world, the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 8, is groaning and travailing, waiting for the glorious liberty of the sons of God because God subjected all creation to futility. And He subjected it in hope. He subjected it in hope. Suffering is God's megaphone C.S. Lewis said, calling people to himself. 
Can you imagine if Adam had not been cursed, he would have never looked for a redeemer. He would have lived perpetually in a state of sin if God had not cursed this universe. And you and I would be doomed to the same fate. And suffering and sorrow brings us to the point where we say, I need a Savior. I think suffering also is in this world because we live in an environment and we live in a world where there is a prince and there is a little g God. He is called the prince of darkness. He's called the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience. And he is in rebellion against God and he wants us to rebel against God. And he is the tempter that brings sorrow and suffering into this world. Another reason there's sorrow and suffering in this world, the Bible tells us, is because of the human heart. We tend to serve our belly as our God, our selfish appetites. James chapter 4 very clearly says, From whence comes wars and fightings among you? Don't they come from your own lusts and your desires to have and to obtain? You kill, destroy, and yet you have not. I don't know all the answers to human suffering, but I do know this, that when evil and suffering happens in our life, we must choose to worship. Because worshiping reveals the genuineness of our faith. Let's look at this passage in Acts chapter 16. Verse 25 is the key to understanding this whole episode with the Philippian jailer. None of it would have happened if they had not chose to worship. The rest of it would have made no sense at all. It starts out with the word, but at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying. Were praying. It's an imperfect tense. They kept on praying and they kept on singing praises of hymns unto God at midnight after all that had happened to them. This was revealing the genuineness of their faith that they had been preaching in the city of Philippi. These men had something real. They had something that changed their life. They had something that brought them joy in the midst of trials, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of suffering, when their feet were in stocks, the bloody beaten backs on that dank, dark cell wall. They were worshiping and praising God. Their faith was genuine. 1 Peter 1.16 says this, wherein we greatly rejoice that the trying of your faith, that Greek word for trying is dokimon. It means to put something into a fire to test it for genuineness. The New King James translates it that way, that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Every time you suffer, you become a little bit more like Jesus. He purifies us. Their situation did not control them. Their God controlled them. They worshiped God in spite of their circumstances and not because of their situation, because they worshiped the character of God. It was the character of God that caused them to worship. Revelation 4.11 says, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive honor, to receive glory, and to receive power. Why? For thou hast created all things, and by your will they are and they exist. 
God deserves our worship because of his character, simply for who he is. It revealed the genuineness of their faith to others as well. Notice the passage, it says, the prisoners were listening. They were listening. People are watching you. People are watching your life, and they watch how you respond and how you react when things don't go your way. God forbid that you act like me and have yourself a pity party. Most of the time I try to do that in private. <laughs> then when finally God gives me the grace, I can go out in public. But I don't think I would have been worshiping. I don't think I would have been praying. I don't think I would have been thinking about the Philippian jailer when the earthquake struck. I would have looked at my shackles and I said, this is my exit out of here. I'm getting out of town. I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself here. They chose to worship because it did two things. It displays the superiority of grace. When you and I worship, we are putting on display the grace of God. These men did, could have had a vindictive attitude. They could have said, we want to get reprisal. I'm a Roman citizen. I didn't have a trial. How dare they put these stripes on my back? How dare they put me in the inner prison? How dare they put my feet in these shackles? That's what I would have been saying. You have violated my rights. How many times do we hear people say that? No. It validated grace. They forgave those people. Not only did it validate grace, it vindicated the gospel they were preaching. Everyone knew that these were preachers in that cell. The demon girl had done a good job of broadcasting who these men were. These men were servants of the Most High God. And what were they doing? They were proclaiming the way of salvation. And the prisoners were listening to them worship this true God. This God that could come and save them from their degradation. Save them from their sins. Save them from their guilt. Save them from their punishment. Save them from their exile in hell separated from God. It validated the power of the gospel that if anybody's in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have become new. Old, all things have become new. It validated the fact in Ezekiel 36 that God takes out a stony heart and he gives us a heart of flesh. And these men were exhibiting that in a jail cell. A couple other people that I thought of illustrations of this. One was a Romanian pastor, Pastor Richard Wormbrand, in a Romanian prison for 12 years for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. They would come into his cell and find him on his knees praying. They would drag him down the hall, strap his legs, take a wooden pallet, beat his feet so bloody that they had to drag him back down the cell. When Richard Wormbrand was finally released from that prison, he could never walk right again. One day, a guard came barging into the cell as he saw Richard on his knees. And he says, why are you praying to this God who does not exist? Richard Wormbrand looked up with eyes filled with tears. 
and said, I'm praying for you. It validates the gospel. And it puts grace on display. I had another dear friend, a co-worker of mine. Persecution wasn't physical. It was mental and emotional. It was nothing short of harassment. Because this individual wanted public school kids to have the right to read a Bible. And the tribunal sat down the hall waiting to interrogate this person. And this friend of mine sat on the floor with an open Bible, praying and worshiping God. And the co-workers were watching and listening. Two people of other religious faiths the very next day came to work and asked that co-worker of mine, where can I find a Bible? Why? Because this individual chose to worship what God does when we choose to worship. He changes us, but he also gives us opportunities. Let's look at the opportunities that Paul and Silas now have because people were listening. What happens? It provides opportunity for people to experience God's power and grace in their own individual lives. The Philippian jailer was forever changed. The prisoners were forever changed because they watched the testimony of Paul and Silas in this jail. There was no accident that this earthquake happened at that very moment. Luke wants to put these things together, that this was not a natural seismic earthquake. This was a supernatural divine intervention by God. Verse 25 is the key to understanding the prison episode. The earthquake was not intended to rescue Paul and Silas because they said at the end of the passage, we are still here. We haven't gone anywhere. So what was the purpose of the earthquake? The earthquake would have been meaningless if they had not been messengers of the Most High God. The earthquake would have been meaningless if they hadn't been publicly beaten and flogged. It would have been meaningless if they had not worshipped and praised God. God was orchestrating and weaving through all these circumstances to bring the gospel to a lost man and his family. You know what that tells me? tells me of the infinite worth of one human soul. God often does his highest work through what you and I often deem unimportant, we overlook, and sometimes simply ignore it. We're good at church and Christians as organizing things, planning things, structuring things, and what we often de-emphasize are the simple things that God uses most. Worship and prayer. That's how God moves and works through his church. When the apostles were first beaten, what did they do? They went back and they worshiped and praised God that they were counted worthy to suffer. And then they prayed for God as the boldness and the place where they were praying was shaken. They didn't organize a committee. They didn't structure some kind of evangelistic strategy. No, they prayed and they worshiped. I'm not saying that those things are insignificant and unimportant. 
But what is important is what we need to emphasize. They prayed and they worshiped, and God brought this opportunity to them. The jailer was about to take his own life rather than to face an execution by a Roman legion. Because Paul and Silas had an attitude of prayer, rather than running from the prison, they would rather stay and witness to the Philippian jailer. It also provides opportunity for the gospel to be put into a context where there is a clear choice between the gods of this world and the God of eternity. It puts the Bible gospel in a context where the choice is clear. When you choose to worship, people see the difference in your God and the gods that they are serving. There is something dramatically different about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is not aloof to our suffering. Jesus Christ made himself of no reputation. He took upon himself the form of a servant. He was made in the likeness of man. And being found in fashion as a man, our God humbled himself. He became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Our God is different. And the Philippian jailer knew that. He said, sirs, what must I do? To be saved. He said, Sirs, I want the God that you have. There was a little lady during the time of the judges who had the exact same impact on Naomi and upon those of Israel. She saw the suffering that Naomi went through, she saw the loss of her own husband, and yet she chose to suffer affliction with the people of God. She says, Your God. Naomi is my God. Your people are my people. Where you go, I will go. Where you die, I will die. Moses said the same thing. He said, I would rather suffer affliction with the people of God than to have the passing pleasures of sin and all the gods of the Egyptian palace. Our God is real. Our God is living. Our God raises from the dead. And the Philippian jailer said, I want the God that you've got, Paul and Silas. What must I do to be saved? It also put the gospel in a context that clearly displayed the need for repentance. This man knew he needed salvation. He knew he was guilty. He knew that he deserved punishment. He knew that God's wrath was abiding on him. And notice the power of this gospel that Paul preaches. The simplicity of it. The certainty of it. And the sufficiency of the gospel that we preach. The simplicity of the gospel. You might be here this morning and you've never heard a gospel message. It's the same today as it was in Paul's day. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. At that moment, God regenerates you and he takes you out of darkness into light. He takes you from one kingdom and he translates you into the kingdom of God's dear son. Believe. What works must we do to work the works of God? Jesus was asked that question. This is the work that God verifies. That you believe on the one whom he sent. 
Is it that simple? Yes, it is. It's not religion. It's not a place where you have to go. It's not anything you have to do. It's trusting what Jesus Christ did for you. He died for your sin, and he rose again the third day so that you might be justified. Would you like salvation today? Simply believe. And then he says the certainty of it. What's the next phrase? And you might be saved. You hope to be saved. No. And you will be saved. Amen. And look at the sufficiency of this salvation. You and your household. Christ's sufficiency is not limited. It is for all. And Paul could say with confidence, this salvation is not only for you. You will be saved, but your entire household will be saved the exact same way. Lastly, it provided opportunity. There's suffering for this Philippian jailer to exhibit a transformed life. This man was never the same from that day on. Albert Barnes is one of my favorite expositors. I don't agree with everything he writes, but he writes some good stuff. And I was looking at this passage today er, that we're looking at, and I read what Albert Barnes said about the Philippian jailer. And I can't put it in words as eloquent as he, so I thought I would just quote him. And Albert Barnes puts it like this, What a change to be produced in one night. What a change to be produced in one night. What a difference between the family when Paul was thrust into prison and when he was brought out and received as an honored guest at the very table of the renovated jailer. Such a change would Christianity produce in every family. Such joy would diffuse through every household because of the power of the gospel and men who chose to worship in the midst of their suffering. He took them the same night, the same hour of the night, Regardless of the late hour and the unreasonableness of that time, he took them at that hour. What an example he was to them, even when it was inconvenient for the jailer to do so because he'd been changed by the power of God. He chose to do that. What an example for you and I. When it's inconvenient, when it's not the best time, that's when we need to put up... Put, put on our pants and big boy britches and say, i got to do something. It's the right thing to do, whether it's the right time or not. The next thing he did, he was immediately baptized. He didn't wait. He professed Jesus Christ publicly right away. He brought them into his home and he fed them. He displayed hospitality and greetings. He was gracious. And then he rejoiced. He exalted. He leaped for joy. Because he had believed in God. So I don't have the answers to human suffering today. I've given you a few biblical reasons why we suffer. But this is something that I do know. That when we go through difficult times, 
and when we are persecuted and we don't understand what's happening to us, we ought to worship and pray and praise. Because God is orchestrating through all those things His perfect plan. Many of you know that we've been praying for my mother-in-law. Been in hospital for nine weeks. For three weeks, she was nearly unconscious because she was losing blood. Had seven units of blood. Bleeding on the inside. Stomach tubes that were coming unfastened. Medication that were meant to be going into her body that were being dumped into her abdomen. One thing after another. Well, my wife, about a year ago, got on an airplane to go visit to Fort Myers, Florida. And she happened to be detained because she was flying standby. No fault of Kelly. <laughs> In fact, thanks to Kelly that we have that privilege. And she met a young lady who was flying between Fort Myers and Ogden. And she had a fellow here that she was dating. Tracy began to share with her her faith in Jesus Christ. A friendship then developed. They became friends on Facebook, and she's been watching this whole saga with her mother, and all the prayers, and all the praise, and all the worship, and in spite of her condition, my father-in-law is praising God in the hospital, seeing doctors, nurses, and CNAs come to faith in Christ. Well, Tracy went down there about a month ago, and she met this young lady out in the parking lot. A vehicle comes driving through the parking lot, and their eyes fasten. Not Tracy's, but this other young lady and the driver of this vehicle. And she's looking at Tracy driving this vehicle across the parking lot and parking on the other side. She gets out of her truck, walks all the way across the parking lot, and then hands my wife a two-foot cross. And simply says, God told me to do this. That young lady that Tracy's been witnessing to knew that God had sent that messenger to Tracy. And she now is so much more open to hear the gospel. When she came into town last week, the first place she wanted to come was to see my wife. God orchestrates through our troubles, through our sorrows, through our sufferings. Why? Because of the incredible worth of one human soul. I'm sure Paul, when he left the city of Philippi and said, you know what? That beating was worth it all to see the joy in that Philippian jailer's family. As God's people, when we suffer... We must choose to praise. It's the most powerful thing that we can do. It transforms us into the likeness of Christ. And it gives opportunity for those who are watching to see a real God in real time change real lives. Let's end with prayer. Father, your wisdom is infinite. Your love is infinite. Your purposes are perfect. 
And so, Father, today, I pray that you will help us as your people to choose to worship you in our darkest hours. We pray this for your glory in Jesus' name.